Hello and welcome to Writer's Book Club, the podcast where we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm Michelle Barraclough and this month the author I took a deep dive with was the one and only Michael Robotham about his latest novel, Lying Beside You. What a book and what a chat. Lying Beside You is Michael's 17th novel, the third in his Cyrus Haven Evie Cormack series, and it's honestly a masterclass in how to write a psychological crime thriller. It's got everything, and Michael was very generous in telling me how he went about creating the magic. We talked about the difference between creating surprise and suspense, a couple of his favourite mantras that he applies to his writing, finding new ways to describe the same characters after nine novels in a series, and how to balance how much information you give away in each book in a series. So if you write crime, if you write psychological thrillers, if you write novel series, if you write novels in general, there's just so much gold in this episode. I will warn you there are spoilers in this episode, so if you haven't yet read the novel and you hate spoilers, make sure you read the book before listening because we do give away some absolute clangers, with Michael's permission of course. Let me tell you about Michael Robotham. Before becoming a novelist, Michael was a former feature writer and investigative reporter working in Britain, Australia and America. His debut thriller, The Suspect, introduced clinical psychologist Joe O'Loughlin, one of his most beloved characters. It sold more than a million copies around the world and was the first of a nine-book series. That novel is being adapted for the screen as we speak and Michael's standalone thriller, The Secrets She Keeps, was adapted for TV by Network 10 and the BBC. The second series has just come out and I'm seeing ads for that at bus stops all over Sydney at the moment, so it's very exciting. Michael is the only Australian to twice win the UK's prestigious Gold Dagger Award for Best Crime Novel for Life or Death and Good Girl, Bad Girl, as well as the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger for When She Was Good, which is the second book in the Cyrus Haven and Evie Cormack series. Lying Beside You is the third book in that series and the one we're talking about today. Let me give you a quick precy of the novel. 20 years ago, Cyrus Haven's family was murdered. Only he and his brother survived, Cyrus because he hid, and Elias because he was the killer. Now Elias is being released from a secure psychiatric hospital, and Cyrus, who's now a forensic psychologist, must decide if he can forgive the man who destroyed his childhood. As he prepares for the homecoming, Cyrus is called to a crime scene in Nottingham. A man is dead and his daughter Maya is missing. Then a second woman is abducted and the only witness is Evie Cormack, a troubled teenager with an incredible gift. She can tell when you are lying. Both missing women have dark secrets that Cyrus must unravel to find them and he and Evie know better than anybody how the past can come back to haunt you. This breathtaking new thriller from the number one best-selling author will keep you guessing until the very end. Unless, of course, you listen to this podcast, because remember, spoilers, so some of that guesswork is explained by the author himself. Let's dive into my chat with Michael Robotham. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Michael, 17 novels, several biographies, many years as a journalist. I'm thinking you might know a thing or two about writing. Uh, Well, (laughs) I don't know if I do. It's one of those things. Yeah, I... It's funny, many years ago, I remember I thought I knew nothing about writing. And when I first read Stephen King's book on writing, he suddenly put into words all of these things that I was doing completely instinctively. 
and he had done it for so long he understood the process whereas i just sort of winged it and i do know a little bit more now than i did then which is exactly why i wanted to have you on because i think other writers have so much to learn from you I want to start with the beginning of this novel and tell us how the process of putting the story on the page started for you. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, my process is probably very different to to most other writers, particularly in the crime or mystery genre. Normally my my novels are seated in in events or a story that I've read or I've covered. This one's slightly different, being the third book in a series. I sort of always knew when I created the Cyrus Haven character and gave him a tragic backstory where his parents and twin sisters were killed by his paranoid schizophrenic older brother, that I always in the back of my mind thought, you know, there might be a future novel, you know, if if that older brother, you know, spends a long enough period in a, in a secure psychiatric hospital, you know, there's always going to be scope there to what happens when he gets released. I mean, how, how does Cyrus confront a situation like that? And as a psychologist, a forensic psychologist, he should be among the best people to understand that his brother was mentally ill and therefore, you know, he, he wasn't aware of what he was doing. But that's a huge thing to forgive someone that's murdered your parents and your sisters that's, and destroyed your childhood. So I guess that that idea was always in the back of my mind. And then the other one, I knew that itself I mean, it could have sustained a novel potentially, but obviously I wanted to bring uh, Evie into it. And I also, I guess, one of the things that I got away from in the second novel was the fact that Cyrus's job as a forensic psychologist was to help police solve crimes and to also treat the victims of crime in terms of, you know, who have psychological difficulties coping. And so I did want to create a, a situation, a crime in the book that Cyrus would have to be involved in in investigating. And so I guess we can talk about spoilers in this podcast because we're dealing with the book and hopefully people listening will have read it. But I, I'd, uh, many years ago, I read a story about a, a terrible medical mix-up in a hospital where a particular medicine that was meant for adults was in the same coloured box as meant for babies. And... Uh, and therefore it led to a mix-up where where premature and newborn babies were given the wrong drug and it led to devastating consequences. And I remember always thinking at the time how absolutely appalling that would be if you were the nurses involved and you're overworked already and you're stressed and you're responsible for that. And I, and I, I like those sorts of moral dilemmas that make great material for books. It sure did. I- Definitely didn't see that one coming. I was looking completely the opposite direction. So well played there. I guess readers also expect to have another crime in there, don't they? Because that's the structure of your novels or or these particular novels. Yeah. I want to praise everything I've said here is that, you know, there are no rules, you know, there are no rules to this. And and it's a bit like, you know, my, my basic premise, my three word mantra that, you know, I don't like three-word slogans, but if I had one above my computer, it would be make them care. I mean, I mm. I try very hard to make readers fall in love with my characters. And then when I do, when I put them in great danger and great jeopardy, the reader is with them. One of the nicest quotes I ever received on blurb from one of my books was from Linwood Barclay, the Canadian writer, 
you know, when he said something like, I didn't just make him care for my characters, his heart bled for them. You know? And I guess, but there are people, you know, who are brilliant writers that, that don't have to follow that rule. I mean, Gillian Flynn in Gone Girl created two completely odious characters who are so compelling. You know, Nick and Amy, you still want to go there. You still yeah. want to find out what happened. And, and obviously, Patricia Highsmith famously created Tom Ripley, again, you know, a psychopath mm. who was the main character, yet completely compelling. So there are no rules to this. But I guess, in my point of view, there has to be a main story and then there have to be sort of, you know, the sub-stories, the secondary stories. And they're often the, the more emotional ones. And with the Joe Locker novels, it was Joe was always battling to solve a crime. He was a reluctant investigator. Unlike Cyrus, who was employed to do this, Joe O'Loughlin always had to be dragged, kicking and screaming into to investigate these crimes because he was a clinical psychologist that just wanted his simple life. He didn't want to delve into terrible, dark places. But I always created that backstory or that other story of he and his wife and Julianne and would they or wouldn't they get back together again. There, there was always another story uh, running through it uh, as well, which allowed me the scope to potentially sometimes ease the tension, give people a moment, the reader a moment to breathe when it was very suspenseful in one part of the story. But it also, it was about, as we always talk about, you know, it was about revealing character. It was about, you know, uh, using those moments. I mean, every scene was important, but they were the scenes where you had to reveal character. Yeah, yeah. And I think I wouldn't care as much about what's happened to Nick and Amy after the end of Gone Girl, but I do care about Cyrus and Evie. And so you can write another three novels about them. Thank you very much, because I do want to see the ongoing journey and where they end up. And I think that mantra of make them care is so evident in your books. And I really want to try and dive into how you do that. I've got an inkling having just um, finished lying beside you. I wanted to read it as close as possible to this interview. So I just finished it last night. And uh, the care factor is is very high, Michael, and I'm trying to figure out why. Well, it's a bit like, you know those moments, it's funny, I, I, I did an event yesterday and I had an 80-year-old retired doctor come up to me and he said, <clears throat> he said, and he, he was quoting scenes from my books and he's saying, these are the moments you made me cry. And he said, right. I cannot tell you how rare it is for someone to make me cry when I read a novel. He said, but, you know, and which was a wonderfully generous and what I told him is that I cried when I wrote it, you know. And so, I mean, there's a scene in which you all know well, in Lying Beside You, where Evie crawls into her hiding place in, in the attic because she knows she's done a terrible thing and, and Cyrus comes looking for her. And there's that moment between the two of them where he tells her that she deserves to be loved, which was, you know, incredibly emotional scene, I thought. But they're the scenes yeah. that people care yeah and he he's really held back from saying things like that to her as well because he knows how much she's craving it and how it could be taken the wrong way and all the transference and all of that sort of stuff but in that moment all of that psychological training goes out the door and he he's just in the moment showing yeah. her that, that he does care about her and that he does love her it's yeah. beautiful yeah yeah there are scenes yeah and it's like you know i remember when i wrote the other wife and there's a very there's a final scene and that it's got nothing to do with with the crimes but it's when it's when joe lachlan's youngest daughter sort of runs away from home you can't find her and she's mm. made this journey to visit her mother's grave you know and uh, 
and I had this picnic on a mother's grave. And I get emotional just thinking about writing that scene. <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. yeah. You've said in the past that you usually know the beginning and the end of the novel and then let the rest unfold with minimal plotting. Did this book unfold in the same way as the others? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the ending ever. At some point in the process, I mean, the only thing I knew with this novel was I wanted, I thought, you know, with, with Elias, I sort of said, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could reach a conclusion where we're obviously terrified of Elias. People all the way through are thinking, this, what is this man capable of? And, mm. and, and you know there's going to be fireworks when he and Evie finally get together. But I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could find, if I could sort of subvert that whole idea of him being the great danger to Evie and have him being the person that actually saves her, you know. And so I sort of had that in mind. I didn't know how. I didn't know where or how that would happen. And I get the, the, the really complicated structure of this book or the most difficult aspect of this book. And it often is when you're writing crime, particularly in this modern day and age where we have so much technology and everyone's findable so quickly and contactable so quickly, is how you isolate your protagonists, your hero, and put them in danger, how you isolate them. And in this case, it was how I could put Evie and Cyrus, dual narrators, how they were going to finish up in the same place with Elias, with the bad guy, isolated, in danger, how that was all going to... I mean, that, that architecture was the most complicated part of the process of, of structuring the, the plot. Was it? Oh, it, you made it seem so seamless. Like, like there was a point at which they're looking for Elias and his monitor has gone dark. Or has his monitors, that's how they eventually... He's a building. Yes. Yeah, no, that's how Cyrus actually tracks him by it. But when he goes deep into the building, it it can't be picked up. It can't be picked up. But there is a point where they can see that he's run away and from the house and he's not meant to have left the house. And... I just thought, oh, no, what's he done? What's he done? And that's when I realised that I actually cared about schizophrenic because when I cottoned on, what if he's gone to save Evie and Lila? That's when I realised, oh, my God, I really care. And I really, really hope that he has and he's done this really good thing. Michael's very clever. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that was the... And that's pretty much actually in all the books I've written in all the villains that I've created... And, of course, he's not, but even in the villain in this case, actually, in terms of the actual villain, I don't just create someone bad that's bad for the sake of being bad. Mm. You know, uh, I don't believe that that exists really in real life. We, society gets the monsters it deserves. And so there's always a reason that they do the things they do, you know, and uh, it, it doesn't forgive what they do, but it explains it, you know, it, it and, and it's a bit like with this story, you know, when nurses start going missing at the very beginning, you know, when the very initial crime with the death of the man and the disappearance of his daughter, it would have been very easy just to make the villain of the piece a potential sexual psychopath that had been watching her, following her, targeting nurses because he was just had some fixation on mm-hmm. on nurses. But, I mean, I know people like that exist. The sexual predators exist. I mean, my God, I mean, this. then again, there are probably more in our bookshelves and crime section than there are in real life. But I wanted there to be a reason why he was targeting. And similarly, even in a book like Shatter, there was a reason why the the perpetrator was doing what he did. And again, as I said, it doesn't forgive it, 
in any way. I'm not in any way apologising for what these terrible these terrible acts, mm. but it helps explain or it helps the reader to understand why. And and while it, in the case of Elias, it sort of generates sympathy, but it doesn't forgive them. You know? Yeah. So in that situation where you didn't really know how you were going to get all of them into the same room with the bad guy, so to speak, did that just evolve as the novel evolved? So as you were writing and you just realised you had to kind of trust that events would conspire to get them together? or I think that's so much of my, my writing. It's, amazing. it's so much of it. It's going all the way back to that very first novel, Suspect, which sold on a part manuscript and and I got all these, you know, 80,000 words in and I had my main character, Joe Lockham, was, you know, his marriage had disintegrated, his career had disintegrated, he was wanted for murder, he was on the run from the police and I had no idea how to win that book. I had no idea how this man with a brilliant mind but a crumbling body was going to get out of it. And I spent days just saying, how do I finish this, you know, and... And and then when I finally had that moment, and you've got to trust that, that you'll come up with the answer. And, you know, I wrote manically for sort of 16 hours because I was terrified that if I didn't get it down on paper and I got hit by a bus, that Joe Lockham would go to prison for the rest of his life, you know, <laughs> for murder. So, I mean, I had to get it down because I was the only person on the planet that knew how to save him. And, and, and that's how real the characters are. That's how much I care about the characters. And I think everyone writing should be looking to care that much about their character. And so it's interesting being involved in TV productions now. And what I, I remember when I was writing Good Girl, Bad Girl, the same thing happened. I couldn't work out how I was going to get the bad guy and Cyrus and Evie all together in the one place, isolated. And, and what I wanted, I said, wouldn't it be great if I had all those brilliant writers that have been helping, you know, on my other team? I could get them in a room and go, here's the problem, guys. I have to get all these people. Help me. Help me. Help me. <laughs> Tell me, how can I do it? How can I isolate them? But in the end, I just had to come up with the answer myself. One of the great advantages I think I have by not plotting is that often I do make multiple suspects equally credible because I didn't know till 75% of the way through this who who the villain was going to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. I thought it... I, it, I thought it could be any number of the forensic technicians or whoever. Yeah, that's where I was going. I was like, oh, is it one of the cops? You know, I didn't know. And I thought, but okay, but in which case I, I hope and I made all of those potential suspects equally credible because I didn't know which of them it would be. Yeah. And I think yeah. sometimes if you know very early on, perhaps you try too hard to hide the identity or you make it obvious in some other way. You know, there's only one. The reader's all automatically drawn to what is going to be one of them. It's going to be one of them. You know, it's nerve-wracking, but it's an exciting way. It's a very organic way of writing. Yeah. And it seems to me that one of the guiding principles that you might use to write these novels was actually in lying beside you when they were looking at suspects. And if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. Yeah. And you were like... See, I think you are Cyrus, but anyway, Cyrus says, Very flat, you know, it's not necessarily a duck, you know, and I think you could say that about your writing as well. You know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, maybe let's make it not be a duck, yeah. you know? I oh, know I think that's true. And I think it's interesting. It's something, it's something Stephen King talked about, you know, sometimes you have an idea and you think it might be a good idea, but if you suddenly said, yeah, but if I change that, the villain to a woman and not a man, that might make it even better idea do you know what i mean where well, you suddenly subverted a little bit you know because you know so many 
I mean, it, it's a great tool, isn't it? That there's only seven plots, and you know, and very rarely you come up with an idea that hasn't been in some way covered before. It's the characters that make it different. But sometimes, yeah, you have to. You, you, it's so much of it is about subverting the reader's expectations and making them wait. By making them wait, you create suspense. You subvert their expectations where you can, without any any way being silly or having i hate those things that have one twist too many where you suddenly think oh that wasn't i mean you had me i love the way you did that you don't have to throw one more twist in because that now makes it it jumps the shark so yeah you're taking the piss now yes the taking the piss test is a really important one (laughs) I was going to ask you about what sort of guiding principles you use when you're writing and structuring the novel, which obviously comes quite organically, but would that be, those be your two main ones? Yeah, I mean, making them care and making them wait. I mean, it's one of those things, you you don't introduce a gun into your story or a bomb into your story and not use it, if you know what I mean. It's one of those, I always remember the, you know, there's a wonderful Alfred Hitchcock line about the difference between surprise and suspense. And I think some writers don't realise this. Surprise, if a bomb went off under my chair now, I assume you'd be quite surprised. Very. Uh, yeah, but, but if I showed you a bomb ticking under my chair and just and you knew it was there, that is suspense, you know. Yeah. Now, at some point, though, in the story, I have to go back to that bomb. I can't just finish the story and never go back and mention that there was a bomb under the chair, you know what I mean? So, but it is one of those things that, you know, when I say subverting expectations, it is about that idea at times of just surpri- surprising people in a way where they don't see something coming, but not in a way that's ridiculous. Because I, I, I liken it to this. At times you're reading one of my books and you will see me plant a clue. You'll say to yourself, that is probably important. That. I mean, typically someone like you who does a lot of reading, you're more likely to pick it. You also... So I liken it to planting a landmine. You actually see me dig the hole and put that landmine down and cover it up. And you think to yourself, that's probably important. I'm going to remember that Michael planted that. Okay. But then I will distract you. Then I will make you care about something and distract you. And later on in the story, you will step on that landmine and it will blow your leg off. And you'll go, damn it, I saw him plant that and I forgot about it or I just got distracted. And so much of it, it is that sleight of hand you know, ultimately, it's more the characters and, and making people care is far more important in terms of people loving your book. But in terms of plotting those twists and turns, it is a bit of sleight of hand. And so much of that for me comes in the rewrites, because when I finally realise who the villain's going to be or how it's going to unfold, I can then go back and plant. I mean, it, it, I often make the mistake. I, I give the reader too much credit so I don't put enough clues in. And I often have editors come back and sort of say, I think you can give people a little bit of more of a steer. Okay, so I'll go back and I'll plant a few more clues in there. Uh, but so much of that, because people sort of think, they imagine I must plot because the plots are quite complicated. But it's not about plotting in advance. It's about going back afterwards. I remember when I saw that food van the first time, like, I think that food van's going to be important. And it was. Is that something that you had to go back and plant? Yeah, because I didn't know. I mean, in the end, I, I actually had, you know, in terms of the medical mix-up, I think I had three or four babies, not just the two. I had three or four potential families I, who could be angry about what had happened. And then it was a case of deciding to, because I wanted this, you know, this subplot in there about Mitch, you know, the you know, the guy that was wrongly accused of attacking yes. one of the nurses. And, and so, yeah, in the end, I thought, I oh, know, I only need the two. But, I mean, each... 
all of that were, were decisions that I came back and took out. I mean, initially, I, I, I had them in there and I had to bring them out, take them out and say, no, I only need two. Yeah, yeah. And even right at the end, you're thinking it's that parent, but no, sleight of hand. <laughs> and it's such a delicious reveal as a reader because you go, oh, he did it. He got me. It's a great lesson, I think. This this novel is a particularly good one to study, I think, for anyone writing a crime psychological thriller. It's, it's really well done. Thank you. So you've talked also about when you are in this non-plotting writing stage where you go down some really interesting side alleys. What was the most interesting side alley you went down? I guess let me go back. Actually, I, I just want to explain the way, first of all, the way I can make that form of writing work. Yes, please. And the way it can work for me is that as long as each time I finish a scene, I can see potentially five or six ways I can go ahead, five or six different, I could write this chapter next or this scene or I could take the story this way, I'm really comfortable. Because if I then go down one of those alleys and it turns out to be a blind one, then I can go back and go down another place. Or I can even go down and think, yeah, that's okay, but maybe there's an even better one here. So I can explore these different ways of going forward and decide which one suits me the best. The moment I reach the writing and I realise there's only one way to go, that's when I get very nervous. Because if that is the blind alley or off a cliff, it means I'm going to have to throw away a lot of words and go back to a point where I feel comfortable that I, I can carry on or potentially, you know, lose the book and I looked at things like I looked at early on days whether Evie could have been kidnapped early in this story I thought could Evie and Elias have been kidnapped together you know could there be you know I, I you know I explored loads of different possibilities there and then thought no and then came back and yeah and then how do you know which is the right way you just feel it in your gut yeah I think it's like that it's a bit like you know I, I often say this you know I don't teach workshops very often but when I do that you know we can talk about the principles, we can talk about some of the rules, but ultimately only you know when one paragraph goes best with the next paragraph or what sentence comes next. That's the writing process, if you know what I mean. And to, I liken it to riding a bike. If you had never written, ridden a bike before and asked me, okay, can you teach me, Michael, on a Zoom call, can you teach me how to ride a bike? I will tell you all these things about having to maintain your balance and pedal fast to keep your momentum going. But until you get on that bike, you, you have no idea. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> until you go and explore it yourself, yeah. you have no idea how to do it. And so writing is like that. Writing is very much like we can talk about all of these little things, but until someone sits down and begins to write and has to make that choice, they don't really understand. And it's even things like getting a character from point A to point B or even just dialogue tags or something like that. I guess you just don't think about it by now. You just sit down and get that scene out. Yeah, I guess it's interesting. I know we'll talk a bit about pacing later and stuff mm. like that, but ultimately you could do endless numbers of writing courses, but ultimately the only way you will really understand all that advice is when you do it yourself and you try and you fail and you get better. So there you have it, people. Just get writing. So... What happens when you sit down to write a chapter or a scene? You have all those scenarios, uh, I could go this way, I could go that way. You make a decision, you sit down. Do you consciously think about what that scene needs to achieve in terms of character development or moving the story forward? Or is it a, just a bit more intuitive? I think it's more intuitive. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I know a lot more about it now, having done some work in TV and film, how you know, actors basically 
you go through this thought process is what do I want out of this scene? You know, <laughs> you know what does my character want? And, and, and to a degree, I think I do that instinctively. I never interrogate myself. I just, it's got to, the, the scene has to either carry the story forward or has to reveal character. So yeah. if it's, if it's like an Evie and Cyrus scene, you know, I'm hoping it'll do both. Sometimes it'll reveal character and, and carry the story. You know, in a perfect world, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Something that does both, does, you know, and sets location and does all those things. You know, the more you can do. I mean, my background is journalism, and and, and that that mantra of never use a long word when a short word will do, and also trying to tell the story in as few words as possible. And again, so that's why my descriptions of characters and of places tend to be short, but they're hopefully memorable. And ultimately, you know, there are some writers that write long. I mean, Stephen King writes very long and then like, might write 180,000 words and cut 80,000. And uh, I tend to write quite tight because I'm always editing myself saying, is that necessary? You know, yeah. Uh, and it's funny, I always love telling the story. I mean, my favourite ever scene with Joe Lockin has never been in print. I, oh. wrote a, I wrote a scene about Joe and his father which I tried to get into every subsequent Joe Lachlan book, but each time, and it's a great scene. It is a really lovely scene that reveals that Joe, a lot about Joe. But in every time I got to the point of editing a book, I thought, you know, it's just not necessary and it just slows me down. Yeah, so it is still my favourite scene that's never been in the book. Ah, oh, well, we might see that someday, do you think? No, we might. We might. I was going to mention those short chapters. So do you always know, right, this is going to be an Evie chapter, this is going to be a Cyrus chapter? Because they're not always alternating, are they? Yeah. Now, sometimes, I mean, the hardest thing about using the dual narrators is that both their stories have to, to, to be at the same place in the, in the timeline. And I, I found this most, probably the hardest book to do this on was The Secret She Keeps when I had two, two women who were mm. both pregnant, babies due at the same time had peripheral lives, if you know what I mean. But I had to make sure that Agatha and Megan's story were not just the same moment in time. You couldn't have a situation where you'd go to an act, switch to an Agatha chapter and she was a week earlier than you'd yeah. just been with Megan. They had to be at the same place. But also they had to be equally compelling, you know. And so you couldn't have a situation, and I, I had the same problem with Evie and Cyrus. I don't want a situation where people say they're, they're more interested in the Evie chapters than they are the Cyrus chapters for example or you know what i mean i want them each time they finish an evie chapter the reader to be saying no no don't leave me here don't leave me here stay with evie but at the same time be going oh what's cyrus doing <laughs> <laughs> um do you know what i mean so yeah yeah right so that's how you decide yeah and sometimes you just look and think okay i need this need to have cyrus chapters in a row because evie you know, particularly in this book, it was quite interesting. In this book, Evie really doesn't come into her own. So much of the Evie stuff early on is just, it's about Evie and how she copes with life and her mm. you know, trying to get a job and going back to school to do her A-levels. And, and whereas Cyrus has got a murder to investigate, you know, and a disappearance to investigate, he's got a lot of material to be going on with and he's got Elias potentially being released from, you know, mm. so he's got a lot to do. Evie doesn't. So in a sense, it, the hardest bit of this was to make sure that I could keep Evie captivating enough for people to say, no, I want to spend time with her until such point in the story where you knew she was going to get involved in that crime as well, investigating that crime and uh, being a witness to that crime. So really it's a feeling about who's got the biggest story and making sure that one doesn't disappear and that they have yeah. not necessarily equal billing. 
in terms of words, but uh, equal billing in terms of interest. Yeah, and I think, well, Evie's such an interesting character anyway, so you're always going to want to find out what she's up to because speaking of ticking time bombs, she is one. You just never know what's going to come out of her mouth and it's always fabulous, fascinating, horrifying in equal parts. Yeah, I mean, she makes me laugh and I think that's what I wanted from Pummy, that she's compelling but also she's funny. I mean, in my previous novels, people used to often say that the Vincent Ruiz character got all the best lines. And I think in these new novels, Evie probably gets all the best lines. Yeah, she does. (laughs) I was going to say, for books about murder and damaged people and deeply disturbing human behaviour, you always manage to inject some humour too. Tell us why that's important to have that element of humour in your novels. Is that just Michael coming out? It's funny, when my first novel was sold, my, my agent actually pitched it. When the suspect was triggered the bidding war, my agent actually said to publishers, imagine if Nick Hornby wrote a crime novel. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes, that's so true. I was trying to think whose sense of humour it's like. And I guess maybe in, this, in, a, in another world I would have loved to have been a Chris Cleave or a, a Nick Hornby or a David Nichols. There's still time, Michael. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. And so, you know, those sort of people that can make you laugh. I mean, I, and it's funny, going all the way back, probably one of the most influential writers that I loved when I was in my 20s was John Irving. And John Irving, you know, with with books like, you know, World According to Garp and Hotel New Hampshire and Cider House Rules, did have the ability to make you laugh and cry on the same page. And so I do like sort of having that situation where there's humor. A, I think it helps when you're writing psychological thrillers because it gives the reader a chance to breathe and relax. It's not just unrelentingly mm. tense. You know that they will yeah. laugh. And they and humor helps them also, I think, again, going back to what we said about making them care about the characters. Um. Evie's interpretation of Othello, when people get to that part, that made me laugh. She's not really built to be at school, is she? Yeah, but it's interesting. No, I enjoyed that. Um, I I enjoyed that for a lot of reasons because I guess I had to study Othello when I was at school. And I I look at it now and say, to play this very rarely... produced anywhere in the world anymore because obviously it is a story which is you know has domestic violence and abuse written all over it yeah. you know, writ large you know and uh, and it's a story about racism and, and intersex marriage and all sorts of things yeah one of the things i really love about your writing is that you always paint a really vivid picture of even the minor characters sometimes in just a line or a paragraph how did you learn to do this is it a particular writer or a novel you read or is it just come to you naturally yeah no it's funny i saw that you aren't going to ask that question and i pulled a couple of little descriptions out i'd love to go into a couple of examples i'll do you two i'll read the description of vincent ruiz when i first introduced him and then the second time i introduced him in a different book um yeah the man in charge is easy to spot he has a ruddy pockmarked face a punch-worn nose and crooked teeth. His crumpled grey overcoat is like a culinary roadmap of stains and spills. He's wearing a rugby tie with a silver plate tie pin of the Tower of Pisa. I like him. He isn't into clothes. Men who take too much care with their presentation can look ambitious but also vain. When he talks, he looks into the distance as if trying to see what's coming. I've seen the same look on farmers who never seem comfortable focus on anything too close, particularly faces. So that's the very first time. And the second time we meet Vincent in a separate novel, Ruiz arrives just after 11. His early model forest green Mercedes is splattered with mud on the fenders and lower doors. It's the sort of car they're going to outlaw when emission regulations come into force because entire Pacific outholes disappear every time he refills the tank. He has put on weight since he retired and let his hair grow longer just over his ears 
I can't tell if he's contented. Happiness is not a concept that I associate with Royce. He confronts the world like a sumo wrestler, slapping his thighs and throwing his weight around. Um, so good. And so, you know what it is? I remember a very famous Hemingway line. And Hemingway, obviously, you know, I grew up in a, in a school of journalism where Hemingway was, you know, in my one of my favourite all-time books, is a movable uh, feast, uh, Hemingway's posthumous memoir um, about being in his 20s in Paris and when he first began trying to write a novel. But Hemingway once described a character as having a dimple deep enough to drop a marble into. And what stunned me about that is it wouldn't matter whether I had to read 300 more pages I would remember that character because of that line. Yep. You know, and, and I guess what I try to do is similar to that, even with minor characters, and not spend half a page describing them. I mean, Royce is a major character, so I spent, you know, a few paragraphs each time describing mm-hmm. him. But it will be to basically focus on something that will cement itself in the reader's mind so that I don't have to necessarily, I may have to remind them a little bit later, but you know what I mean? It's, 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 yeah. it's that idea. Of, and it's the same as, I guess it goes back to Elmore Leonard. One of his great mantras was that when you finish a novel, you shake it. Writing a novel, you shake it. And, and if it rattles, there's something that has to come out. And it's right. normally the bits that rattle are the bits that readers skip over. It's the bits that if it's two and a half pages of description of a location. Just glaze over. They glaze over it. They just, and it's similarly, even when they look at, if, if you turn a page on a book and you just see two pages of solid prose without a break for any dialogue at all, and, and often if, if they're long paragraphs, you're just looking at pretty much two paragraphs per page, you think, oh, yeah. it's going to be a bit of a chore. No. <laughs> <laughs> Might go and empty the dishwasher. <laughs> you know I mean, so, there's, so that idea of um, it's important to cement characters quickly in the reader's mind and imagination and, and obviously get on with the story. As Stephen King always said, Never forget it's about the story. Mm. Also, beautiful use of metaphor and simile as well. Yeah, it's funny that I have, I think that's, again, a reflection of, of trying not to use cliche, and, but you've got yeah. to be very careful because I've actually discovered that I've come up with what I thought was such a brilliant simile that I've mm. used it more than once and created my own cliche, uh, <laughs> you know, in, 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 in subsequent books, you know, it's uh, but I used to play a game when my kids were very young. We'd be in the car and it was one of those sort of driving games. But it would be someone would start off and go, it's as cold as, you know, and someone would go ice and they saw there's snow. But eventually they'd move through the obvious ones until someone came up with something where you thought, oh, wow, that is really good. <laughs> that yeah, is really good. Because you're looking at just something unusual, you know, which which works and to avoid that sort of, you know, as blue as and then let them run. And so we would have a lot of fun doing games like that. But in a sense, when I'm writing, I do the same thing. At times I'll think about, okay, what would be an unusual way of doing this? I do remember down at StoryFest when we first met 2019, I did a workshop with Jacqueline Moriarty and she had a similar kind of writing exercise where it was almost like a mind map. So you had to write a word on a piece of paper and, and we chose a colour. So I think the colour was white. And then we, you know, as a group, just brainstormed all the 
words we could think about associated with the word white. And of course, we had clouds and snow and all of that sort of stuff. But it wasn't until we all started really scrabbling for what else, what else, what else is there that we got to their really interesting yeah. stuff. And I always remember that. So great it's idea to teach your kids that early as well, because it's a fundamental of storytelling, isn't it, really, being original? Yeah. And it's interesting you say that, because that method that Ray Bradbury, who's again one of my great heroes, when he wrote his short stories, he would actually do that that similar sort of word map on the page where he would simply write down a word which he knew, particularly if he didn't know how to start, write down a word which he knew was going to somehow be an issue in the story or a feature or whatever, and then write down another word and another word and another word and another word. And eventually out of all these words he was writing down, a sentence, the first sentence would emerge. And he right. would, so he, that's how he would begin when he couldn't think of a way of beginning. Do you sometimes have to really think about those things? I mean, does slap your legs like a sumo wrestler just come to you? Well, no, I guess I, I picture Royce in my mind. I think there are other scenes where, you know, other, other books where I describe him, you know, as, as being broad like a bear and having these big hands. Like, so I imagine him being, I mean, I guess you know, people used to often ask me, you know, who, who would you want to play these characters if they ever make them into a TV show? And, you know, in my head, I used to always uh, often picture Reese as Ray Winston, you know, the British actor. Um, but he's a very big bear-like man with rounded shoulders. But, you know, uh, and Reese I sort of pictured as being like a rugby prop, you know, big but, but round, keg-shaped really, with sort of cauliflower ears from being having put his head in a few too many scrums yeah. and a bit of a booth-stained nose, you know, and... Um, Bit rumpled. Yeah, a bit rumpled, but the idea of, yeah. you know, and a bit grumpy, you know, Richard Andrews is a bit yeah. grumpy. Uh, and in each case, because I'm, you know, obviously by the time I was doing this sort of eighth or ninth Joe Lockham novel, I'm finding I'm having to think of the eighth or ninth way to describe him <laughs> in a new, fresh way, you know. That, yeah, that people, bloody hell. You know, and so you're looking at, okay, how do I describe him this time? So speaking of having to write the same character eight or nine times, how do you get the balance right between telling new readers enough backstory or enough about that character without it seem like info dumping for readers who are already really familiar with yeah. the earlier books? Well, I think two things are really important. One, and I think it's a mistake made by too many writers, I think new writers that I'm reading in Australia at the moment, the writing series, is that their second novel depends upon people knowing this, pretty much the entire story of their first novel and therefore... The first novel becomes superfluous. You don't, unless you've read it, you pick up the second novel. You don't need to ever go back. What I've tried to do with these the Cyrus and Evie books, if you pick up Lying Beside You, you could still go back and read the first two. I mean, you, okay, there's still, there's still crimes that have to be solved. There's still a lot you can get out of reading those first two. You don't have to, mm. you know, whereas if, you know, so, so that's important. I think people have got to think whatever their plot is, if it relies on the fact too much on the fact that everyone's read the first book, then you should think of another plot, think of another way of doing it. Um, and then when it comes to introducing characters, you've just got to find a new, fresh way of doing it. And the less you can say, the better. I mean, it's a bit like, I mean, in the Joe Lachlan series, Joe's daughter Charlie gets kidnapped uh, in the book Shatter. And the only reference I ever make to that again later, you know, when Charlie is becoming a psychologist or wants to study psychology against Joe's best wishes, he reflects on the fact that at the age of 12 she was kidnapped and she's always wanted to understand why someone would do that to her. 
That's all. Mm-hmm. It didn't, I didn't know the circumstances of kidnapping, how she got saved from the kidnapping. Clearly she did because she's going on. In the next book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, limit how much you say about that previous book. I mean, that's the first thing. Uh, and then mm-hmm. the other great trick, and, I, and it was something I learned really early on, which I, I keep in mind when I write now, is that for anyone who watches soap operas, okay, Let's just say I know Neighbours has ended now, but if you watched your very first ever episode of Neighbours now, okay, if you'd never seen another episode of Neighbours before in your life or Home and Away or anything like that, what's absolutely astonishing is within about 20 minutes, you'll know the relationships of every character there. And all it will be is a little throwaway line, line like, oh, Harry hasn't been the same since the divorce, you know, or that custody battle really took it out of her or whatever, you know, suddenly in a throwaway line of dialogue, You've told people all they need to know. And TV dramas do that brilliantly because they always rely on the fact that they just accept the fact there'll be people watching it for the very first time and therefore you don't have to tell them the entire backstory of 40 years of events and whatever, but you just need to make sure they know the relationships, you know, and, and so much of that can be done not through an info dump, it can be done through dialogue, it can be done from that aside, you know. Sort of say, you know, just mm-hmm. like, like someone saying, is he still off the grog? You know, that tells all you need to know. Clearly, someone had an alcohol problem, they're now off the grog. You don't have to have gone and described someone's massive battle with alcoholism or, or whatever. So, with this novel, the main part of Cyrus's journey is the fact that his brother's coming out of the psychiatric hospital. Is that why you just want to get the information out there for new readers right up front, you know? If I could tell you one thing about my brother, it would be this. Two days after his 19th birthday, he killed our parents and our twin sisters because he heard voices in his head. As defining events go, nothing else comes close for Elias or for me. Wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> as a new reader, yeah, I'm... Oh, oh, by the way, I should tell you, I love opening paragraphs. I spend <gasps> a lot of time on Do you? Right, paragraphs. yeah. I mean, I think... And they're not always the first paragraph I write. I could come up with the be- better opening much further down... You know what I mean? But open paragraphs are really important to me. Um, yeah, I mean, that to me, that's all you need to know. I mean, I do go on to describe what Elias did. To, that's more often to reveal more about Cyrus than it is about Elias. But that opening paragraph, in a sense, tells you everything you need to know. And, and it hooks the reader. Exactly. But even for readers who binged all three in a row, there's still new information in there. So that's one of the things to do as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit like slowing down. I mean, there is, I think in Good Girl, Bad Girl, or one of the earlier books of Cyrus, I have him describing, you know, discovering, coming in from football practice. But I describe, this is a totally different description, if you know what I mean. And he's remembering different things this time around, because I mentioned this time around his father and his home brew, and little things like, you know, his father had opened that, you know, that wasn't in the earlier description. Because each time it's as though when he remembers, he's remembering more details of that night and what he found. And I love that as a reader coming back to to Cyrus's story, I'm learning more about the twins as well. You know, that April was older by 20 minutes, therefore bossier, and she was dressed, and here we go, um, but it was April dressed in a unicorn onesie who ran towards the knife trying to protect her sister. Like, that's, mm. that's new information. So, yes, give the new readers everything they need to know, but give the old readers something new as well. Absolutely. And I I always remember one of the things that, you know, Bryce Courtney, I think, made the mistake in some of his writing, that the first 25% of 
the book would be uh, info dump from the previous books. And for regular readers, they would go, oh, come on, get to the story. I know all this. I know all this. So I don't want readers to be, they've read these early books, to, to get to this early chapter and go, all right, I know that Elias did these things. Why am I hearing this again? I want to, I want to do it in a new, fresh way give them new information where they're going, oh, I never realised something. So it's nice that you picked that up. That's exactly what I try to do. That's really good. It's a, another lesson. So, Michael, you're a master at writing unputdownable novels. Um, I think the last unputdownable novel, well, where I actually put down the second novel and then picked up the third was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And it was the same with these three books. Had to just pick up the next one straight away and start it to find out what's happening with these beautiful, amazing, very compelling characters. What did you do in this particular novel to manage the pacing? I think pacing for me, it's, it becomes a natural thing that because, I mean, you have to realise what you would read in a single sitting, okay, might have taken me a week or two to write, okay. And so when I'm writing it, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is so slow. It's taken me two weeks to get Evie from here to there, you know. Yeah. Whereas when you read it, it's for you, it's gone in a single sitting. So I think it's incredibly slow. And it's not until I go back and read it that I realise that it has this natural pace because I'm terrified that I'm writing something that's, I'm thinking, this is so boring. This is so boring. It's taking far too long for the next thing to happen. And oddly enough, what tends to happen with me, and, may, and this is also a reflection on not having an ending when I begin, is that when I do come up with an ending, my greatest danger is that I rush it. I'm so bloody relieved to have this ending that I rush towards it in case it sort of escapes me. And probably the most common editorial note I get from editors when I deliver is, you have given the reader no time to breathe in that those last few chapters. Go back, slow it down, you know, give the reader a chance to breathe, you know, increase the tension, do what all that stuff you want to do, but just don't rush the ending, you know. Uh, and and so the pacing comes, and, and a lot of that pacing comes from what I said, you know, it, it's the bits that rattle, it's the bits people skip over. And so that helps your pacing. You know, if you take out the bits that rattle, if you find quicker ways of describing things. But other than that is, uh, uh, yeah, it's just a natural thing for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, just, I, I feel, as I say, I, in the writing, because it takes me a year to write what people will read in 11 hours or 12 hours or whatever. If, yeah, I keep imagining they're going to take a year to read it. I'm thinking, <laughs> my God, it's going to be quick. <laughs> And is dialogue a part of that? Because your dialogue is brilliant. Like the banter between Cyrus and Evie and Cyrus and everyone is so snappy. Is that something that you really focus on? Yeah, I, I think dialogue is so important. Dialogue is important. A, because as I said to you, the, very, the point of view of what looks good on a page, you know what I mean? It just gives the reader a chance. It's an easy thing to read dialogue. It's shorter. And the trick with dialogue, two, the two tricks are, one is always remember that every character cannot speak in the author's voice. They have to, you know, with me, it was trying to create Evie's voice and she's a teenager, so she will sound different to Cyrus. And I think ghostwriting taught me about capturing voice. And I think readers and, and writers should do exercises. They should at times, you know, give themselves a task of saying, let's imagine a rescue. And there are four witnesses and they're all completely different walks of life. You know, one's a teenager, one's a businessman, one's a mother have them describe it in their own words and see without announcing how old they are, whether you can pick it 
just mm. from the language you use or have them talking to a police officer the back and forth and by the language they use you know who it is you know what i mean so it's a bit of that and the other thing people have to remember at dialogue is it's not about it being realistic because realistic dialogue involves you know people stopping talking over each other getting halfway through a sentence and changing their mind and doing something else you know i mean that's for film and that's for stage they can do all of that book dialogue is a stylized form of dialogue so it's start and, and to, i always say to myself it's like when you have an argument with your loved one and you remember 20 minutes after it's finished some killer line you should have delivered it's just zinger you know in a book you can put those zingers in that's why it's always sound snappy that's why it's always that wonderful back and forth because you get to put the zingers in. Yeah, right. And how hard is it for you to differentiate? Do you have to do a bit of method acting, right? I'm a damaged 19-year-old young woman here or? Yeah, I do. And, and it's funny, I'm reading a book at the moment and it's got teenage characters in it who are all referencing films that weren't even made before they were born. I'm thinking, no, 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 you, you haven't done the work, yeah. you know, and uh, it's to the author. And so... I mean, I'm going through and I'm looking to see what the slang is of the British, you know, and Evie's using word like something being really Gucci, you know, and I threw that at my my daughters and they didn't know, they could have a guess of what that meant, but that's the sort of term. Context will, will give people an idea of what it means, but that's teenage slang from where Evie is growing up and living. And so I will do the research to make sure that I get that right. Yeah, I had to guess the context of Gucci. There you go, you know, because that idea of even when we think when, you know, we're teenagers describing someone as being really fit, they don't use that. That's 15 years old, that idea of describing someone as being fit, you know, and so you've got to keep up with the times. Yeah, really. yeah. It was a Gucci cocktail, wasn't it? Like a fancy cocktail. Is that yeah, what? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and there are times when I think if it's too obscure that people won't get it for the context, I yeah. won't use it, you know. And again, this is a bit like, People have to be wary about using regional accents or, or dialogue. Yeah. And suddenly having everyone speak in a Scottish brogue, it can become, unless you're, you know, who am I thinking of, uh, train spotting. But, you know, there with an the entire, I mean, it becomes really difficult. You know, it's one thing to have the occasion of someone call someone a wee lassie or a, you know, a bairn or whatever. People get the sense that they're Scottish, but it's not turning every word into as though they're from the tenements of Glasgow or whatever. Yeah, it must have been quite tricky with, secrets she keeps with the two pregnant women similar ages yeah you're right and that becomes a background thing i mean obviously megan came from a much wealthier background private schools yeah. whereas agatha didn't and, and so much of it comes down to is okay if i was ghostwriting i mean i ghost wrote 15 autobiographies for people and and that was all about capturing their voice so jerry hallowell sounded very different to lulu sounded very different to tony bullimore sounded very different to dennis thatcher and so each of those, it, it, it's it's almost a case of, you know, discovering without overdoing it. Whatever you do, don't overdo it. Yeah. Um, but people can, some people can swear a lot. You know, some people, uh, so you can actually differentiate a bit because they throw in a swear word. You know. Some people can have a bit of a catchphrase. Some people can, you know, it's a bit like New Zealanders putting A at the end of every sentence or Australians putting bus, you know. Oh, he's a great tennis player, but, you know, I mean, there are certain, <laughs> you know what I mean? There are things you can do. That can differentiate between, um, you know. And other times, if you describe a character very early on as having a bit of a, 
you know, cut glass you know, accent. And then the reader is automatically thinking about them sounding different. I've got a question from a listener, Terry Green, who's another writer. How does Michael keep coming up with ideas and premises? And does he have a process for choosing between storylines? As I said, it begins with a what if moment. And, and you know, for, okay, for argument's sake, I am working on a new Evie and Cyrus book now. Oh, great news. And, and I guess in the background, I've always thought we've never really heard the full story of how Evie got to the UK. And, and so I have a chance to tell a bit of the creation story. But also a huge issue at the moment in the UK is boat arrivals with the migrants crossing the channel and, and drowning some of them or being turned back and that whole issue of refugees and right-wing groups trying to campaign and all sorts of politicians taking advantage of it. And so I think, well, there's a modern-day story I can tell plus the backstory. Mm. And so I'll start with the premise. I mean, this book will open with... Cyrus and Evie, Cyrus having convinced Evie to come to the beach, which she doesn't want to do, you know, and because it's the summer and she spent her entire summer holidays indoors and they're at the beach and bodies begin washing up on the shore, which completely triggers Evie into an absolute you know, meltdown. Yeah. So that's the way the whole story will unfold. Um, and so I just begin like that, really. And, and I guess the difference is I always remember something Stephen King talked about, and I'm pre pretty sure it was Stephen King, that it's a bit like walking along the road and seeing a bone sticking out of the ground and you begin playing amateur archaeologists and you begin brushing dirt away from the bone. And it could be a dog bone, in which case you're going to discard it or throw it in the bin, but it also could be a dinosaur, okay, and you're hoping for the dinosaur. And I tend to write novels that way. I see the bone, I begin brushing all the dirt away, and I see what I uncover. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever run out of ideas? I think every time I finish a book that I have completely That's it. used up every idea, that's <laughs> it. Every one-liner, every description is gone. I'm an empty vessel. Nothing in the tank. I will have to get a proper job. I think you've had one of those, Michael, and I think you've got one now. Thank you so much for your time today. I've so appreciated it. I know you've been on a massive publicity tour. How's it all going? Good, good. I, the book's been out for for three weeks. Um, yep. uh, I, I've been three weeks at number two. I cannot get past Crawdads. That Damn swamp, it. That Swamp Girl just keeps doing me in. I do love that Swamp Girl. But uh, no, I mean, uh, I've, um, I'm very fortunate. And sales are up, which is great in this climate. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And another Evie and Cyrus novel in the works, which is great news. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. Michael, good luck with lying beside you. I'm sure you don't need luck. <laughs> good luck with your writing. Good luck to everyone listening to, uh, you know, um, my best piece of advice is to write and to write and to write and to write. And when you're sick of writing, just write some more. That is brilliant advice to end on. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. There you go. Michael Robotham. Lots of fabulous writing advice in there. I hope you enjoyed that. I love that analogy of the landmine and also the driving game that he plays with his kids of coming up with original similes. I think I might give that a go. You'll find links to Michael's website and socials and a link to buy a copy of Lying Beside You in the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app that you're listening to this on or on our website. Now on to this month's guest. Many of you writers and readers will know him as the former head honcho of Booktopia. He's also the author of the 2018 bestseller, The Girl on the Page, which I absolutely loved. Such a smart, funny, thought-provoking novel. I'm talking, of course, of John Purcell. This year, John released his latest novel, The Lessons. 
My favourite review of the lessons was by the author Felicity McLean, who said, It was brimming with love, lust and lies. I read it in a single sitting. Best enjoyed with a martini. Well, I didn't read it with a martini in hand, but I definitely enjoyed it over a few glasses of Pinot over the weekend a few months ago. And then I had the pleasure of catching up with John while he was in Sydney promoting the book. And after some exceptional matchmaking from our mutual friend Jessica Detman, John agreed to come on the show and I couldn't be more delighted. Here's the blurb for The Lessons. What if your first love was your one and only chance of happiness? 1961. When teens Daisy and Harry meet, it feels so right they promise to love each other forever, but everything is stacked against them. Class, education, expectations. After Daisy is sent by her parents to live with her glamorous bohemian Aunt Jane, a novelist working on her second book, she's confronted by adult truths and suffers a loss of innocence that flings her far from the one good thing in her life, Harry. Then we swing into 1983. Jane Curtis, now a famous novelist, is at a prestigious book event in New York being interviewed about the overlap between her life and her work, including one of her novels about the traumatic coming of age of a young woman. But she evades the interviewer's probing questions. What is she trying to hide? An intriguing, striking and powerful novel, The Lessons tells a compelling story about literature, love and betrayal, about how far writers will go in plundering their lives for their art and about how much we're prepared to forgive if we forgive. As always, I'd love you to send in your writing questions, so go grab a copy of The Lessons from wherever you get your books, and once you've read it, flick me your questions for John Purcell via email or on Instagram or Facebook under the post about The Lessons. Or there's a form as well on the website, writersbookclubpodcast.com. As always, I'm giving away a copy of the book too. To enter this month, all you have to do is sign up for my quarterly newsletter, which will be coming out next week. I've got a few things to share with you in that, including an update on who my guests will be for the rest of the year, if you want to get some forward reading in, plus a bonus giveaway of a very special novel, and some exciting news about a course that I've created with Valerie Koo and the team at the Australian Writers' Centre. So it's going to be quite jam-packed. You can sign up for the newsletter at writersbookclubpodcast.com. Just scroll to the bottom of the homepage and you'll see the sign up there. Entries close on August the 10th, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a new giveaway every month. So just follow me on Instagram or Facebook and you'll always be in the know. And I also just wanted to say, it's not just new subscribers that go into the draw to win a copy of The Lessons. It's anyone who's ever subscribed because I have a particular dislike of competitions that only include the new kids on the block and not the loyal long-term supporters. So rest assured that if you are already a subscriber to my newsletter, you will also go in the draw to win this novel. So thank you to all of you for listening and supporting this podcast. It's a bit of an act of love putting the show out there every month, but I get so much joy out of chatting with writers about their craft and from your gorgeous messages saying how much you love it. So thank you for taking the time to say all those lovely things. It really makes my day. Oh, one more thing I wanted to mention for anyone who'll be in Sydney on the 3rd of September. I'm hosting two panels with five writers at the Writers Unleashed Festival in Gaimea. It's going to be such a great day. There are 14 events throughout the day across all genres of writing featuring authors like Petronella McGovern, Danuka McKenzie, Ray Cairns, Anna Downs, Ashley Collegian Blunt, James McKenzie Watson, Danny V. Victoria Brookman, James Bradley, Nadi Simpson, and so many more. 
There are workshops with writers like Cassie Hamer and Deborah Abella. And there are still a few spots left for manuscript consultations with fabulous editors from Harlequin and Penguin Random House. So jump onto that. The great thing about this event is that it's just one day and it's just one ticket that gets you into any event and includes catering for the day. So how good is that? You can find out more and buy tickets at writersunleashed.com.au. So jump onto that if you're going to be in Sydney on September the 3rd. I think that's it for this month. You'll find all the show notes for this episode right here in your podcast app or on the website at writersbookhubpodcast.com. As Northern Beaches locals, both Michael and I recorded today's episode on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing. <laughs>